Well, good morning. Good to see you today. When I, I, I was probably around 10 or 11 years old. I can't exactly remember how old I was when this happened, but when I was growing up, uh, my parents never let uh, me and my brothers buy anything unless we could pay for it 100%. Like, unless we could pay for all of it, we couldn't buy any of it, which is a good thing when you grow up, but when you're a kid, it's really frustrating, especially because, like, my friends, whenever they would want something, they'd ask for money. Their parents would give it to them. That wasn't my case. And so there was one, this one time for me, and I don't remember what it was. It was probably 80 100 maybe a little bit more than $100, which when you're, again, around 10 years old, like, that's a significant amount of money. And so I, I wanted whatever it was, and we were, we were going to order it online, and I was, no kidding, no, no joke, less than a dollar short, like 40-something cents, 50-something cents short. And my dad would not let me buy it. He said, unless you have the money, you can't buy it. Even though I'm like, dad, I'm like 30, like what's the big deal? He wouldn't let me do it. And so I said, okay, how about this? Give me like 15 or 20 minutes and I'll go look around the house to see if I can find any change. And if I happen to find a change, can I buy it? He says, sure. And so uh, I promptly went upstairs into his bedroom, opened up his, uh, his dresser where he had this, this tin can full of change. I got the exact change that I needed. I probably should have been smarter about it, but whatever. I got the exact change that I needed, and I proceeded to go sit in my room for 15 minutes as I looked. I come back downstairs, and I say, what do you know? I found the money, and I was able to buy it. Now, as frustrating as it was, again, when you're a kid, as an adult, it taught you a lot of lessons about finances, and so now it's helped uh, me and Christina uh, with our budget. We're very strict on these sorts of things, very disciplined, and so now whenever I want to buy something again, because it's been instilled in me, unless you can pay for it up front, you can't buy it. You know, we try to avoid debt. Now I save up my money really dil- diligently. If there's something I want, get excited for it. And the day comes, right? The day comes. I have enough money to buy the thing that I wanted. And then I remember I have a wife and two kids and I still don't get to buy it. And so that happens. Now, now I share that story because we're talking today about something that I think is relevant in the sense of, as Brian said earlier, today we're talking, this week and next week, we're talking about this idea of sex. And if I'm being honest, I think many of us, either currently or in the past, kind of viewed sex the way I I viewed handling the finances. In other words, we might have this idea of what God says about sex and how ideally it's between two committed people in a marriage and a lifelong relationship. And we might say, well, that's a good idea. Like, I can see why that's a good thing, as I, as a kid, could see why it's a good thing to have all the money you needed before you bought something. But in the end, is it, does it really matter that much? And so that's the question we're looking at this morning. Is sex a big deal? Does it really matter that much, or is it this thing that we kind of overblown? Maybe it's kind of outdated what Scripture says about it. What do we even do with the topic? That's what we're looking at today. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have one, maybe you have one on your phone, or if not, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. That is our gift to you. Uh, last week, we got in back into our series called Masterclass, where we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written by this guy named Paul uh, within 20 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it, and it hits a whole host of topics. In other words, it's kind of like a masterclass on life. And it shows us how the gospel impacts every area of our life. And so uh, if you were with us earlier this year, when we left Masterclass before Easter, the last chapter we read was 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and there had been a problem that a, a, a man in the church was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, the issue wasn't just that that was what was happening. The bigger problem was that the church did nothing about it, and this man was going around saying, it doesn't, it, it's not that big of a deal. I can do what I want because Jesus has given me grace. And so starting in verse 12, Paul is going to reference back to 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he's going to talk about this idea uh, of sex and sexuality and what God actually created it for. And he picks it up in verse 12 saying this in chapter 6. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. 
Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, and you, you might see that there's some quotations around the words, everything is permissible for me. What is likely happening here is that Paul is kind of quoting this uh, phrase that the Corinthians use. Now, this is not a phrase that the Corinthian church made up, but because the Corinthian church was in Corinth, as, as is all of us, we are heavily influenced by our culture. This is probably a phrase that the Corinthians used to say that I can do whatever I want. And so that now they're saying, and, and, and as a follower, of Christ, I am free. They probably, they probably modified it in the sense of saying this, as I follow Jesus, that there is freedom for me to do whatever I want to do, which is true. There are two unique ways that Christianity gives us freedom. One is that Scripture never, especially throughout the New Testament, there are very few times where God says, this is exactly what I want you to do. Typically, more so, the point is that Jesus wants our heart. And so, for example, when it comes to generosity, he doesn't say, this is how much I want you to give. Instead, he wants you just to be generous. He doesn't say anything about how much vacation time we can take or how much TV we're allowed to watch. No, that's not the point. The point is following Jesus with our lives and letting him impact our life. And so they say, well, we're free to do whatever we want because there's not really rules or regulations. And the other way we're free, as we're going to see today, is that Jesus came to give us freedom. In other words, that we don't have to be controlled by our desires. And so there's, since there's not a lot of black and white, you must do this uh, this amount of times, there's freedom in following Christ. They're kind of, uh, they're kind of, especially in the first Corinthians example of chapter five, this man was using this example of saying, everything is permissible for me. That's kind of the cultural phrase. I'm free to do whatever I want. Now, one uh, commentator put it this way, that yes, following Christ, there is a lot of freedom in it. In fact, I would say there's much more freedom than we often think, but our freedom is limited in three ways. Uh, one of those ways is limited by one one's regard for others. And so if what we're doing is hurtful to other people, that is one way that our freedom is limited. We're not supposed to, as followers of Christ, do things that intentionally hurt other people. Uh, secondly, our freedom is limited by regard for our self. And so if we're do what we're doing is not good for us, even if we want to do it, we ought not to do it. And then thirdly, that our freedom is limited by what does not promote the dignity and destiny of the human body. And that is what Paul is going to focus in on today. And so he's going to give, you, give us an example of what he means. Verse 13, he says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, this is in quotation, so this is probably another Corinthian phrase. But he says this, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. And so what was probably happening here is when it talks about the food is made for stomach, there was this phrase of like, well, if our stomachs, our bellies are, are made when we're hungry, what do we do? We fulfill that desire. We eat. By extension, doesn't, doesn't that mean every other area of our life? And so when we have sexual desires, should we not fulfill those as well? Because it's a desire that we have. But Paul makes a distinction here that what we do with our bodies matters because if you are a follower of Christ, that your body is dignified, it is worthy, and it will somehow, some way take part when we resurrect to, uh, to enter into God's kingdom when Jesus comes again to reestablish his reign, our bodies will in some way be a part of that. In other words, he's saying that our bodies are not, or were not made and are not made for dishonorable purposes. Instead, your body was and is redeemed by God. Now, what's interesting is, and this is why this book is so relevant for us today, 1 Corinthians, that culture in first century uh, Corinth, was very much whatever you want, 
you do. If you crave it, you go after it, and do not let anybody tell you otherwise. I don't know about you, but I cannot think of a better slogan for 2019 Western culture, right? If you want it, you deserve it. And what's interesting is this is what our culture says is freedom. If you want something, don't let anyone get in your way because you are free to do whatever you want. Ironically, this is what the scripture, all throughout scripture defines as slavery, in other words, you are enslaved by your desires if and when you can no longer say no to them. If you cannot say, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this, but instead, every time you have a desire, you must fall to those desires, that is actually slavery that is not freedom. And think of it this way. Maybe the biggest issue, sin, struggle, thing that you have going on in your life, it's, maybe it's an addiction, it's something that you can't stop, you can't turn away from, or maybe you stop for a while, but then you fall back into it, right? That is slavery because it owns you, and Jesus came to uh, give us freedom from that. And so specifically in the topic that we're talking about today, here's what I want us to know this morning, that sex isn't just sex. That is what Paul is saying here. He's going to say as we continue to read that sex is not just sex. So there is something significant and important about it. Now, let me just say this as we're getting to this message. My goal is not to make anyone feel guilty, not to make anybody feel condemned. Uh, if we're being honest, all of us, according to Scripture, have sinned sexually at some point, and so no one is free from what Paul is saying here. But that being said, what we also need to know is this, that God is not anti-sex. In fact, if you look throughout the animal kingdom, there are only maybe a handful of animals that even experience sexual pleasure in any way. In fact, for, for a lot of animals, it's actually... Uh, painful to have sex. And so God created sex to be what it is. It wasn't like he was surprised that like Adam and Eve, or, you know, they figured it out. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, he knew what was going on and he created it to, to be the way that the, the desires, the pleasure, the way it connects human bodies. He made it be that way. What's actually in, quite interesting is that science has actually caught up with scripture. So science says that when you sleep with another person, psychologically and emotionally, there is a connection there. There's a bond that is forming. What Paul is simply saying, he's just trying to bring it to their attention that sex isn't just sex. And again, let me just say this. He's not saying this in a condemning way. He's not saying this in a how dare you way. He's simply saying this, that I want you to experience life. And for us to do this in the full degree that God has for us, we need to understand that sex matters. And sex matters because of this, because sexual sin will prohibit your joy. Sexual sin prohibits your joy. Again, it's not because God's approved. It's not because God wants to hold you back. It's because God actually wants you to experience life to the fullest degree that you can in this life. And when we, when we diverge from God's creation, and specifically in this text from God's design for sex, it will actually diminish or prohibit the joy that God wants for us. And so Paul continues by saying this in verse 15, talking about this idea of why sex is important. He says, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I also take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that Scripture joined, uh, that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so what he's saying here is simply this. Again, uh, that the, the two will become one flesh in verse 16 is an allusion to Genesis chapter 2, the original marriage, Adam and Eve coming together. He says that sex, again, as we said, brings people to, together in a way that is significant and meaningful. And when he says that you should, should you not be joined to a prostitute, he's not just saying that, hey, listen, sleeping around isn't a good thing. And the Corinthians mind, it would have conjured up images of the temple where certain temples of certain gods, you would actually have people 
temple, sleeping with prostitutes as a way of worshiping. And he's saying, listen, if you are a part of Christ, then your body, your physical body as well, is a part of Christ's body. So how are we going to go then sleep with a prostitute as a worshipful act to another God? So we should not do that. His point is that if we are a part of Christ, then these things do not go together, right? Sleeping around in sexual immorality in the ways that God did not define sex to be, and following Christ, what it does is it brings dishonor and sin into the body of Christ, and so these things do not go together. And to help make this point about how sexual immorality does not go together well with Christ's body, I turn to the best place that pastors can go to in times of need, and that's the theological resource of Facebook. And I asked this week, I said, I need an example here. Can you guys give me some comments of things either you or someone you know, I want to know about food combinations that are gross that shouldn't be eaten. And as of, I think of Friday, it was at the 76 comments, and so you guys are really excited to talk about the gross things that you put together. But here are some of my personal favorites of things that should not go together, but some of us put together. Somebody said that they, they eat peanut butter and jelly and ketchup, so that's good. Uh, why? I, that's right. Okay, good. Uh, another person said ranch and grapes, and I'm like... I get it with vegetables, but like, that's like juice and, no, yeah, you don't do that. Uh, somebody said uh, green beans and grape jelly, which I guess if you're like starving, you could get away with it, but I don't know. I don't know why. This is awesome. Somebody said pickles and frosting. Like, why do you, like, who does that, right? Those things, right, exactly. Like, they don't go together. Why would you do that? Uh, another person <laughs> said spaghetti in a peanut butter sandwich. So they would put spaghetti and peanut butter in a sandwich, and I'm like, the thing about spaghetti is it's pretty, like, neutral. Like, it doesn't have much of a taste, so I guess you could, you could, but, like, why? Like, there's just no reason to do that. Uh, somebody, multiple, a couple people said either ketchup and steak or mustard and steak, which, okay, listen, like, I guess that's not disgusting, but why you got to do that to the steak? Like, why you got to, like, that's not, and then here's probably my favorite, as in my favorite, it's, like, who in the world would do this? Uh, somebody said pickle juice and Vegemite. And so that's, uh, I don't even think you should eat those things separate. And so, like, I don't even know together is gross, right? And that's the point here. The point is this, that again, God has a good design for sex and the covenant relationship between a man and a woman to flourish and bring joy and life to your life. But when we fall short of that, we are bringing things that do not go together. And so here's why we need to know that sex is not just sex. It's because you can't have sexual sin, or you can have sexual sin or sexual joy, but not both. And again, this is not a, a, a condemning message. This is not a how dare you do this. It's not about you better stop or God won't love you. Instead, it's just simply this, that you can have sexual sin or sexual joy, but you cannot have both things. What is one of the things that we say often here at New City Church? That sin is sin because God says so. Like God says, don't do this, it's wrong. And so because he says it, it's simply wrong. But it, I believe, especially if you read all throughout the New Testament, that the reason sin is wrong is not just because God says it's wrong, but because it prohibits us from living the life that God wants for us. And here's what we know, that God wants us to experience joy and life. Now, how do we know that? Because in God's kingdom, that is what the kingdom of God is going to be like, that there's going to be no more pain, suffering, that it's going to be much more amazing and better than we can imagine. But what happens is, in this life, when there's sin, where things fall short, we, we miss out on some of the joy that God wants for us. And so the point here is simply this. Again, it's not supposed to be a condemning thing or a hurtful thing. It's simply that when we do sin sexually, we miss out on the joy that God wants from us. We miss out on the joy that, wants, that God wants from us. So you can have sexual sin or sexual joy. And Paul's point is here, you cannot have both things. And so what do we do with that? 
What we're supposed to do is probably what you hear often in Christian circles, that we are supposed to, what we need to do is flee sexual sin. We're supposed to flee sexual sin. In fact, that's what Paul, exactly the words that he says in, in verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Now, the thing about fleeing sexual sin or, or fleeing sexual immorality is that sounds nice, but I think sometimes we're like, what does that actually mean? And so what I did this week is I, I, I want to give you four practical ways, maybe some of these will speak to you, maybe some of them won't, of ways that you can actually flee sexual sin. And what's interesting here is when Paul says flee sexual sin, what he's probably likely doing is he's alluding to Genesis chapter 39. If you have no idea what Genesis chapter 39 is, it's the story of Joseph, not Jesus's dad Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament who was sold into slavery uh, in Egypt and eventually rises to become the second uh, most powerful man in Egypt. But before that happens, he's living in the house of Pharaoh and Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's top kind of top people, has a wife and this wife had taken a liking to Joseph and tried to seduce Joseph to sleep with her. And what does Joseph do in that story, if you're familiar? He flees and he runs. Well, then he basically gets accused. Uh, she doesn't like that. So she basically accuses him of raping her or making sexual advances so he gets thrown into jail. And Paul's point here is that is what we're supposed to do with sexual immorality. We're not supposed to hang out with it. We're supposed to flee. It's kind of this ongoing pursuit against sexual sin. And so if you're like, what does this actually mean? Here are four things maybe to consider. Maybe one of them will be, will be helpful for, uh, for you. Here's the first one, that you and I need to stop pretending that's not an issue. Like, we need to stop pretending that sexual sin is not an issue. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that, again, it is everywhere, and you have to actually be intentional or else you're just going to succumb to it. There has been multiple times in my life, again, as a pastor, what I get to do is people will often confide in me, which is a great honor of things that are going on in their life. And there has been multiple times where I've had guys come to me and say, hey, I've got this porn addiction or I've got this going on, whatever. And I'm always like, great, I'm, that's awesome because you cannot deal with something going on in your life if nobody knows about it. If it's in the dark, if you're trying to pretend it's not an issue, you can't deal with it. And so they tell me what's going on. It's always encouraging conversation that we can start to, to take steps to kind of fight against it. The problem is, is that if they're not close friends with me, I can't be the one to walk along them, walk, walk along with them. And so I'll say, hey, if you're in a community group, Tell the guys in your community group. If you've got friends that are close friends that you trust, like tell them so you can walk with them. And there have been multiple times where I've had a guy will tell me, hey, I'm struggling with this. And then within a week or two, we'll be at a Bible study or whatever with guys that he knows, with his friends, and we'll go, wrong, go along and say, hey, what's going on? Is everybody doing okay? Anything going on in your life? And they won't say anything. And I'm like, why are you not, I don't, don't say this thing because, I, again, I'm not, it's not my place to say it, but I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, you just told me this was a problem, and now you're pretending it's not an issue. So, of course, it's going to be a problem with you. Of course, you're not going to make progress on this because you're acting like it's not a problem. And so I think for the vast majority of us that are, that are struggling with, the sex, especially the area of sexual sin, the biggest problem is that we're pretending it's not a problem. So one way to flee it is just simply to be honest about the issue in your life. Here's a second way. There's a second way that we can flee, that you and I are to avoid tempting situations. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. One way to flee sexual sin is to avoid it. What do we often do? We kind of sometimes, we think like if we're, if we're struggling with something that we need to be in the presence of it and say no to it, and that shows that we're strong. But really, that just shows that you're being stupid, right? What do alcoholics do, right? They don't buy the drink and just sit there in the bar and stare at it until they leave. No, they avoid it altogether so that they're not in a situation where they can fall from it. This is what fleeing means, that you're avoiding the situation altogether. So for example, let's say you're dating or you're hanging out with someone that you're interested in and you're alone in an apartment watching Netflix. Like that's probably not the best thing to do because a lot of times when you're watching Netflix, the only thing to do is to chill. 
And if you don't know why that's funny, ask someone around you after the service. They'll tell you. I say, you, what do you want to do? You want to avoid that so that doesn't happen. I want to share with you real quick, and you might not find, think this is interesting. I find this absolutely fascinating. The, the, that shows us how, our, how the context that we're in plays a huge part in whether or not we succumb to an issue. In 1971, uh, there was a study done. It was in the 16th year of the Vietnam War. And basically, the United States government had noticed that there was a heroin problem. And heroin is a highly addictive drug. And they actually found that 20% of, the so- of U.S. soldiers uh, were addicted to er- heroin when they came back to the United States. Because, and, and not only were they addicted, there was 35% of them that had at least tried it a few times when they were in Vietnam. And so they realized, oh, this is a problem. A lot of our soldiers are addicted to heroin. We must, we got to do something about it to help them transition when they get back home. So hopefully they can get off of it. But here's what they actually found when they commissioned this study. That when they returned home, only 5% of the soldiers who were addicted to heroin became re-addicted within a year. And not only that, only 12% of the soldiers had even relapsed within the three years that they had returned home. Now, heroin is a highly addicted drug. It's thought of as one of the drugs that you, if you're addicted to it, you're just kind of stuck on it. There's not much you can do. But what they found was that nine out of 10 soldiers that used heroin in Vietnam nearly eliminated their addiction overnight just by returning home. Now, why is that the case? Because our contact, context is a huge, uh, huge environment, a huge encouragement or huge enabler of our issues, right? In Vietnam, there's war, the, the weather's difficult, you know, there's fighting, there's death, and there's a lot of heroin. So in that context, it's really easy to get addicted to it. But when you come home and you're not involved with the stresses of life, heroin is not readily available, you have some of the comforts that you didn't have, you're not you know, worried about dying you know, tonight or tomorrow, what they found was that their environment was no longer filled with the triggers that they had found in Vietnam. Now, what's interesting about this, it is also interesting to point out that it's not that their addiction was just gone. Like, I guarantee you, if you sent the soldiers back to Vietnam, they would probably get re-addicted. But the problem was that their struggle, the heroin, was no longer right in front of them. And so they were able to break an addiction that everybody thought you could not break. Why? I mean, they weren't doing this, but what happened is their tempting situation was taken from them. So I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what that means in terms of software, accountability, or whatever, but if you want to flee sexual immorality, sexual sin, it's not about going up to the line and trying to be strong. It's about avoiding it all together. That's what Paul would be saying. Here's a third way you could uh, avoid sexual or you could flee sexual sin, uh, by trusting in God over yourself. So let's just be honest. This can be hard. Like Part of following Jesus is not just believing that God exists, but actually trusting that he is good and that he cares for you, right? Sex can be enjoyable. Sex can be fun. Part of this in the moment, it can be like, what's the problem? That we actually have to trust that God loves us, knows better than us, and wants good for us, and his plan for sex is good and worth pursuing. That we actually have to trust him over ourselves. Otherwise, we're not even going to pursue this at all because this can be a hard thing to do. And then lastly, number four, that you need to understand that sex won't fulfill you, right? Sex won't fulfill you, which is hard in our culture today because we're, what are we told? That sex is the ultimate. Ironically, uh, all of us know if you have had sex, like just being honest today, you know after you have, you still have all the same problems, you still have all the same stresses, like nothing in your life has changed except the moment that you were doing it. 
right? Nothing, it will not fulfill you. And so you have to understand and you need to know that I, I, we view sex as this ultimate thing and so we have to pursue it at all costs. It will let you down. I have a pastor friend, his name is Jay, he lives in Jacksonville, and before he became, got into vocational ministry, he worked construction for a number of years, and he has all these back problems. I think he said since 2005, he's had over 12 surgeries, and he says, he said, I'm not, not, I'm not saying this to like exaggerate, but it's just the reality that every day of my life on a pain scale of 1 to 10, I live at a pain scale of 8 every single day. Sometimes it's a 9, sometimes it's a 10. And what that means is that some mornings I wake up and I can't do anything. I plan to do for the day. He's like, I miss out on a lot of things, and it's really hard. So, but I want, what, you want, what you need to know is that even though I'm missing out, here's what I know, that one day in God's kingdom, I'll have no more pain, I'll have no more suffering. I'll look back at this life and be like, man, that stuff that you missed out on is nothing compared to what you get to experience now. And so I am looking forward and I am trusting and knowing that God's plan is good, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of the plans that I don't get to do because of my back pain. I know God is good and one day it'll all be worth it. Now, what I haven't told you about Jay is that him and his wife actually have 10 kids together. Uh, yeah, together. And so he hasn't missed out on everything. Uh, but, and I also know that, that that point doesn't really go with what I'm trying to say here because that's the opposite. But the point is simply this. He misses out on things, and he knows it's okay because those things could not fulfill me anyway. And you and I need to know that sex is a good gift that God gives us in the proper context, gives us life, but it will not fulfill you because it can't, because it wasn't designed to. And what the problem is, is one of the problems that we have, why, why our sexuality is such a big deal and causing so much hurt for us today is because we think it can give us what it cannot give us. It cannot give us life, only Jesus can. And so we need to trust him in that process. And so those are some of the ways that we can flee sexual sin. And, but ultimately, here's why. So those are those, some of the ways we can do it. But here's why ultimately you and I, Paul is calling us to flee from it. He says this, continuing in verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. See, here's Paul's point here. There's some debate about what Paul actually means about sinning against your body, but the point is the same. The point is this, that sexual sin is incompatible with the body of Christ. What he's saying is it all matters. There is not a distinction between your body and your sex life. What you do matters to God. There's not this compartmentalization that we like to do in our culture, that separation does not exist, and that if you are in Christ, you have the body, you are part of Christ's body, and so by sinning sexually, you are bringing sin against Christ's body. Now, let me just say this. This is heavy, right? This is especially in a culture that loves sex, especially because all of us have fallen short in this area. It can feel condemning. It can feel judgmental. But here's what's so beautiful about this to me, because I think oftentimes, again, when we think about God, we think he's prudish, we think he's outdated, we think he's just trying to hold us back, we think he doesn't really understand, he's not enlightened like we are today. Like, you know, here is ultimately why it's important for us to flee sexual immorality and why this is beautiful. Verse 20, here's why. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. In other words, that God loved you so much that you were so valuable to him that he gave his life for you because he cares for you. And so let me just ask this question. Have you ever had something valuable stolen from you? 
right? Have you ever, maybe it was monetarily valuable or it was just valuable because it was something that somebody gave to you. Like when you have something valuable, when something damages something valuable to you, it matters. And it's not because you like necessarily hate the person that damaged it or because the thing that you are valued has experienced pain, suffering, or loss. It's the, val- it's the thing that you value that matters. And so that's what Paul's point here, is that God loves you, that you are valuable to him, and so he desires to have a relationship with you. When I was in high school, probably about 15 or 16 years old, um, I had this silver dollar stolen from me. Now you say, what's so significant about the silver dollar? Uh, it's an 1881 silver dollar. When I turned 13, my dad had this ceremony with some of the other men in my life and just saying, hey, you're 13 years old. You know, obviously, you're still a teenager, but you're a young man now, and so we're going to treat you like a young man. It's kind of like this, this rite of passage type of thing of, like, let's become men. And so he gave me a couple of tokens to kind of mem- commemorate the, the, my birthday, the evening, that sort of thing. One of the things he gave me was an 1881 silver dollar. So obviously, this is valuable to me. So one day, it was, again, 15, 16 years old, and uh, I realized that it was missing. Like it was A lot of my friends that knew that I had them. And uh, I'm like looking at my desk in my room and it was gone. And I was like, when I had a friend over the day before and I'm like, I know he stole it. I know he stole it. But I was in a predicament because I couldn't confront him about it because if I asked him if he stole it, I knew I would never get it back. He would say, no, I'd never see it again. So I was like, I know he stole it. And obviously this thing matters to me. And so I have to, what am I going to do? So I decided to go over to his house the next day. We're hanging out. And we never really hung out in his room. They had like this bonus room area that we normally hung out in. But I went to his room to look for it. And I don't know where he was, so he didn't like see me go in there. Thankfully, it was sitting on his nightstand, and so I was able to get it back. So I get it back, put it in my pocket, don't say anything. He walks into the room. His face is red. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just sitting here. He's like, what are you, like, we're never in my room. Get out of my room. I'm like, okay, okay. But I'd gotten it back, and I think he had known that I got I didn't say anything, but I got it back. And here's the thing. I was like, yes, I got it back. And so this week, I was actually looking up, like, how, how much is a 1881 silver dollar worth? And I found that it's actually worth $6,500. So not only is it valuable because my dad gave it to me, and as you, if you know my story, you know my dad is no longer here, um, but it's also worth a lot of money. And I was like, okay, dad. I was like, get on with it. <laughs> and then I read the five print in mint condition. This is actually only worth $30, so don't rob me <laughs> because it is not in mint condition. But what happened, right? Something valuable was taken from me, and so I wanted, I wanted to get it back. And so here's why, we, uh, here's why we need to flee sexual sin. Not because God is against you, not because he's prudish. Here's why. Because you are valuable to God. You matter to God. That is why we do this. Not to make God love us more, not to follow the rules so he's not mad at us, but because he has something good planned for you, and he cares for you, and you are valuable to him. That is why this matters. Uh, Our first year of marriage, Christina and I, we got married. Before we got married, she was driving this white Mitsubishi Mitsubishi Mirage, had no AC. It was awful. We lived in Wilmington at the time. And so when we got married, again, being the nice, loving, gracious husband that I was, I gave her my CRV, and I drove the piece of crap. And which honestly, it's not that bad, except, you know, when it's 105 degrees in Wilmington and like you go in somewhere and you're like drenched in sweat, like the sweat's not bad, but everyone's like, dude, are you okay? Like, what are you? And so, but one night uh, I had taken the CRV because I had to transport something. I needed the trunk space. And so she had taken the Mirage. And so she calls me and she says that she'd gotten an accident. And so I answer the phone. I'm like, well, hello. She's like, yeah, I got an accident. And so me being the loving, gracious husband, you know, we just got married. It's awesome. I said to her, what do you think I said? Was it your fault? And so <laughs> that wasn't good. 
Um, but here's the thing. I could tell because I loved her so much, the tone of her voice that she was fine. Okay, so I knew. And so I asked her, was her fault? Now, good news, it wasn't. Uh, she also was okay, so that's good too. So it wasn't, now, why do I share that story? Because what, what matters ultimately is not the car. What matters is Christina. The only reason the car matters is because she's driving it. You see, when it comes to sex, we think that God just cares about our sex life because he wants to get back at us. He wants to get even. He wants to hold us back. What you need to understand is the only reason God cares about a sex, your sex life is because he cares about you. You are what is valuable, not the car. And because he knows that what we do with our bodies hurts, the, hurts us, hurts our relationship with him, he says this matters, that I have created sex to be something that is life-giving and is awesome. We're going to talk more about that next week. And so if you thought this was kind of weird, next week is going to be really awkward for me. But we're going to talk all about, all about it next week of, of the life-giving attributes of sex and why it is a good thing from God. But Matt, well, again, but the point here is that you are valuable to God, so what you do with your sex life matters. Not, again, not because God's like trying to like see if you're good or not, how much you love him, but simply because he loves you. He loves you. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen. Paul also wrote this. In verse 21, he says this. He said, he, so God, made the one, made Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, you are so valuable to God that he sent Jesus to make a way for you to experience love, grace, and forgiveness, not if you screw up, but when. And so what we need to do here is we need to simply remember who we are, that we are not, uh, we do not, as we saw last week if you were here, we are not identified by our sin, by our mistakes, and by our hurts, that you are, cl- that you are valuable, that you are loved, that you are worth it, even if you don't feel it. That is who God is to you. That is, that is how God views you. And if you understand that, that will change you. If you understand that you are loved and valued and chosen and a child of God, that will change you, not behavior modification. And so as I close, here's the really the main point of this text that I want us to take away with this morning, and that's this. That sexual sin doesn't decrease your value to God, but it distorts his value to you. Here's what happens when we sin sexually, right? We often think God's going to get mad at us. He's, hate, he, he's like, this vengeful God, all sorts of things. What we know is that that's not true. That's why Jesus came, because he loves you, he cares for you, he died for you. But what it does do, when you and I sin sexually, it actually distorts our value, to, or our, his value to us. It's actually the opposite. We think God's the one that's getting upset, but in actuality, when we sin sexually, it is us furthering ourselves from God. Let me just give you this example really quick. When I was in college, I read this blog post by this college pastor, and he was saying how whenever he has college students that are really involved in his ministry, and then they stop being involved, they stop showing up, he'll often meet with them. And sometimes they'll meet because the college, says, the college student says, I have a lot of questions and I have some doubts, whatever. And so he says, they'll meet. And he says, every single time I meet without fail, the first thing I ask is this, who are you sleeping with? He says, I don't ask if, I don't ask, I say, who are you sleeping with? And I don't, it's been a while, so I don't know if he said everyone or the vast majority. And my experience, and again, it's my anecdotal experience. I haven't been doing this a ton of time. And my experience has actually been every time as well. He says, every time someone had fallen away from Jesus, is because they were having sex in a way that was not honorable to God. What does that show us? That God did not care about them any less, but they had used their sexuality to start questioning, saying, well, I don't actually know if God cares. I don't even know if I can trust the Bible, right? What happens is it distorted God's value to them. And so for us, sexuality matters, again, not so God can get upset with us, God can get mad at us, but because it distorts our value. It distorts our perceived value to God. Like, we don't think that God cares about us. God loves us. It changes our value to him. He does not change how he values 
us. And this is the gospel, right? The gospel is this, that Jesus came. And what did he do? He gave his body for us. So not if, but when we fall short, and that includes in our sexuality, there is grace and forgiveness for you and for me. And Jesus is simply saying, come and follow me so that you can experience life. Now, I don't want to hold you back. I don't want to restrict you. I want to give you grace, forgiveness, and love so that you can experience life. That is why he came, and this is why it is good news. Again, Paul does not write this letter condemning them. He does not write this letter angrily. He's simply bringing to the fact that Jesus came to give you life, and in this, especially in this area, when we pursue our own desires, it'll, it'll prohibit the life God has for us and our relationship with him, not because he cares about us less, because we often care about him less when we let this change our life. And so simply remember this, that sexual sin does not decrease your value to God. Nothing you could do could decrease his value, your, your value to God, but it does distort his value to you, and that is why it matters. Let's pray.